Today's scripture is, as Ben said, Acts 18, 1 through 17. Um, that'll be on page 927 in the Bible in the pew in front of you. I'll give you guys a moment to flip to that. Okay, once again, that's Acts 18, 1 through 17. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people." He stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. Since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal, and they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Thank you, Chris. See the number of scriptures listed there, yeah? That's not all of them. So some finger calisthenics. Go, start stretching. Little finger presses. Crawl along the back of the pew. Uh, shoulder rub to the person next to you. Uh, assuming you came with them. Let's not get too awkward here. Maybe you noticed some of the theme in the, in the words we were singing. So thank you to Eric and team for leading us. Is anyone weary? If you're not weary today, you, you know what it's like. You're weary in this season where you've been in those places of weariness, whether it's physically, emotionally, mentally, relationally, spiritually, or all of the above. Paul was weary. I think we kind of view him often as like a superhero in the Scriptures, you know, relentless and unstoppable in following Jesus and fulfilling his call to preach the gospel of the Gentiles and even his call to suffer on behalf of Christ. His life and witness certainly convict us. They challenge us. It's, it, he's exemplary for us. But I think he'd be the first to say, no, 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 there's, 
There's one hero, and it's not me. It's the one I'm trying to tell you about. It's Jesus. Because for me, I was often weary and worn out and ready to quit. And that, I think, was his reality as he came into Corinth. And I believe his friends, Silas and Timothy, kind of saw this weariness growing in Paul, and that's why they sent him to Athens. I was reading between the lines of chapter 17, verse 14 and 15. They sent him to Athens by himself to get some rest before they continued on in their missionary journey. Obviously, they were being led by the Spirit. I don't know that, I mean, they probably had some cities circled on their, on their list of how awesome would it be to visit these places and start in these urban centers and see the gospel then spread from there on these massive trade routes and commerce centers of the region. But they were following the Spirit's lead. And in this case, I, would, I, I do believe that Paul was being sent by his friends to get a, a time of rest in Athens. We see him in Athens what does he do? Immediately pour himself out continually in the preaching of the word, in the ongoing ministry. He can't seem to help himself. <laughs> Later, he would write to Timothy. This is one of the last uh, writings we have of Paul in our scripture. Second Timothy 4, 6, he said, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. We see him consistently being poured out, pouring himself out. But had he thrown in the towel here in Corinth, would he even have been able to write those words to Timothy years later that he had fought the good fight, finished the race, and kept the faith? I think he was right on the edge of ending in Corinth maybe as quickly as he ended his time in Athens and heading home uh, for at least some recovery and some rest. We should mention that after leaving Athens, which he only spent a few weeks in Athens from our best guesses. He comes to Corinth about 50 miles or so away. Uh, It's estimated that in this three-year stretch of his travels, he traversed up to 2,000 miles, many of which on foot. Uh, That'd be like walking from Seattle to Chicago to give you some perspective. So maybe we could say he stumbled into Corinth. Corinth was the largest and most cosmopolitan city in Greece. Pastor Tim Keller says, if Athens could be compared to our Boston, an intellectual center, Ephesus compared to Los Angeles, a popular and occult center, if Rome could be compared to D.C., a political center, then Corinth is like New York City, a diverse commercial center with just about anything and everything under the sun. Corinth had just as much rampant idolatry as Athens, and yet was far more perverse and pervasive in its sexuality. There was actually a term that had been used for hundreds of years by this point to be a Corinthianizer. It was used throughout Greece to mean someone who was sexually immoral or sexually explicit. Every night in Corinth, thousands of slave prostitutes would wander the streets looking for worshipers. So perhaps this, as much as anything, was what was wearisome to Paul, and he was ready to quit. But he continued his relentless preaching amongst the Jews, um, certainly part of the wearisome response for Paul was that he was opposed, reviled, still threatened uh, by what should have been his brothers. He had to work hard daily. This is the first time we really see this labor in Paul, although he had this work ethic, I'm sure, throughout, but This is the first time we hear that he was a tent maker by trade, or at least had the skills in leather work to do this kind of work. 
and he had to work daily uh, just to just to live and to support his ministry. Uh, the term tent maker, I think, really throughout his church history, has been used as a bivocation for bivocational ministers of the gospel that support their own work through other work. By Paul's own admission, when he wrote to the Corinthians in the first letter, First Corinthians two. Verse 3, he said, I was with you in weakness and in fear and with much trembling. And they knew that, but he was giving them a reminder of how hard ministry was and how weary he was when he came to them, worn out and ready to quit. And so I wonder if anyone can relate to Paul. Weary, worn out, weary by physical standards by just lack of sleep in this season in life and fighting illness or pain and grief in the job that you're in, the career that you're in that is hard, or maybe relationally there's just tension within marriage or within family, uh, maybe on all fronts, maybe weary simply by looking into the world. And that shouldn't be our response when we hear another tragic event happening this week. But to be honest, one of my first responses was weariness. It wasn't anger or sadness, it was weariness at that storyline of evil in our society, in our world. So I'm, I'm guessing we can relate, many of us. And so, Paul, being weary and worn out and ready to quit, stayed in Corinth for 18 months. Longer than any other time in any other city up to this point. So, What happened? What happened that made him stay and endure and faithfully minister? Maybe the same thing that needs to happen to some of us, and it can. Great encouragement and great reminders of who God is and what He had called him to. Weariness is not wrong. In fact, it may be a reality for the followers of Jesus. Jesus himself was weary. We see him weary physically as he is fully man. He was weary on his journey uh, through Samaria, John chapter 4. We see him weary emotionally uh, with the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and maybe even with his own disciples for their lack of faith. Oh, oh, how long will I remain with you? There seems to be a sense of weariness. Certainly spiritually, there was a weariness Uh, in his fasting in the desert, but maybe seen most clearly in the Garden of Gethsemane as he cries out to the Lord and actually says, my soul is weary to the the point of death. Jesus lived on this earth with uh, a sense of weariness at times, finding ultimately his sustaining grace in God the Father. A servant is not above his master, so if Jesus endured, was persecuted, was opposed, Battled weariness physically, emotionally, relationally at times, and even spiritually, then we too can expect the same as we encounter this world, as we strive to be faithful to the same call to proclaim the gospel, to make disciples, to teach and train, to encourage believers, to love and to pursue. We've seen it enough time in Acts already, I think. You know, Francis Bacon said, Prosperity is the blessing of the Old Testament. Adversity is the blessing of the new. It's not our weariness that is wrong, but it's often what we do with it. Do we come to Jesus with it? Do we endure? Do we rejoice 
in it? Do we count it a blessing? Perhaps we do the first two, but to get to that next level of what we're called to in response to weariness, maybe we've got room to grow. Paul said in Romans chapter 5, verse 3, we rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice in our sufferings. You could put in weariness. We rejoice in our weariness. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint or put to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit to whom He has given us. There's a process and a path. And actually, that growth can only take place through that adversity. Do we rejoice in it? Do we count it even a blessing? It's interesting, Paul's letter to the Romans was written while he was in Corinth, likely at his second visit, but knowing full well what he experienced in Corinth, interesting that he is writing on some of these same themes to the church in Rome. But before he ever wrote these words, he's ready to quit. He's weary and worn out. So what convinced him to stay? Was it God's people? Certainly, Paul wasn't alone. We see that on a number of accounts here. God's people were a blessing. He immediately finds Aquila and Priscilla, this dynamic married couple. Uh, Likely, they were already believers, which means the gospel was also spreading from Jerusalem apart from Paul and his work because they were from Rome originally. Uh, It's possible they did come to faith under Paul's ministry, but we're not told that, and it seems like Luke would have included that, that piece. But he finds this couple who ministers alongside him. Really, from this point on, they become uh, strong allies of Paul. They're mentioned six more times uh, in the New Testament. Interesting, and maybe I'll work on this next week a bit. uh, Priscilla is mentioned first four of those times. Even here in this passage, it switches to Priscilla first in honor of her ministry, likely her wisdom and her ability to teach, as we'll see in the next passage. So they invite him in. They show hospitality. Uh, Paul must have been encouraged by that. He had a place to stay. God was providing still for his needs, and relationally, he wasn't alone, even though Silas and Timothy had not yet met him. Seems like Silas and Timothy were going to meet him in Athens, but he just couldn't stay, so he bailed and uh, went over to Corinth, left a note for them in some some form, maybe sent him a text or a Facebook post, and they found their way. Can you, I mean, do you just, I was thinking about this the other day. Uh, Prior to cell phones, uh, how did we do that? How did we commun- communicate where we were going to be and when we would be home? And when, to, you know, just, it was just an amazing thought. As some of you can remember that. So they, Silas and Timothy finally come, maybe some weeks or months later. Uh, certainly he's encouraged by their presence and their friendship. He, they bring with, with them uh, provisions. He finds uh, Titius Justice who opens up his home next to the synagogue and ultimately seems to come to, to believe. Many Jews are coming to believe, even Crispus, uh, the synagogue ruler in his whole household. So Paul is not alone. God's people are there and new shoots and new life are coming through his ministry in a way he didn't see happen in Athens. He's not alone. So God's people were certainly encouragement to him. What about God's provision so clearly was God providing for Paul in not just the people, but in this lodging, in food, in resources. Silas and Timothy brought gifts to Paul and probably allowed him to start doing more ministry. 
as opposed to having to work day by day in the tent making or leather making trade, they receive, he receives this gift. He mentions that in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 9, and then Philippians 4, 15. He says, when I was with you, I was in need. I did not burden anyone, which means he was working. The brothers who came then from Macedonia supplied my need so that I refrain and will refrain from burdening you in any way. So the churches in Macedonia that he had been visiting and started, they were already giving to support his ministry as they sent him on in the missionary journey. Philippians 4.15 And you Philippians, you know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no other church at first entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. And even while I was in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. This was part at least of what Silas and Timothy were doing. I'm sure Paul said, all right, go back and visit them, encourage them. And as they came and they heard what Paul was continuing to do, the church gave and supported and they brought these gifts to Paul. Great encouragement, God's provision. Even the skills that Paul had in leatherworking. We don't know too much about his early days, but wherever he picked up this skill, usually from a father, maybe from an uncle, uh, this skill in leatherworking and tent making, Maybe he never envisioned using it or needing it to live on. And here he is relying on that skill in order to support his ministry in a, in a bivocational way. Perhaps God is equipping and preparing you right now in this season with something that you'll need for future days. You have no idea about, but God does. All of these provisions, I mean, they must have helped Paul sustain, be sustained and trust in God's great Greatest provision above all, His presence, His grace. A reminder that God was with him and saw him and was caring for him. And maybe the greatest provision of all was new life in Christ. That was His purpose and His mission. And He was seeing a harvest. He was seeing a church, a new, another church grow. From people coming from blindness to sight, from bondage to freedom. I mean, seeing, a, seeing effectiveness in your work on the positive side, is one of the most encouraging, motivating things. If you're in a career or a field uh, that you are skilled and gifted in or passionate about, seeing effectiveness can often just keep you going. And on the flip side, that negative side, seeing no effectiveness, seeing no fruit, wondering if it even makes a difference, is often the most burdensome and wearisome, even in a field that you resonate with, maybe even more so, gifted at, passionate about, and seeing no effect to your work. That is a hard place to be. And that was Paul's reality in Athens when very few turned and trusted Jesus. And now here he is in Corinth, and many are coming to the Lord. Must have been great encouragement. If you're weary in this season of life, remember God's provisions. And they may not be much, relatively, but they are enough. Jesus said in Matthew 6:26, "Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Your Father sees you. He knows you. He will provide for your needs. He knows your needs before you ever express them, and better than you know them yourself. We may have relatively little as Paul did in Corinth, and yet be rich. Paul said as much when he wrote back to the Philippian church, right? I've learned the secret of being content with plenty 
and in want. We sang it this morning. You give and you take away. In times of abundance, I praise you. In times of want and desert places, I choose to praise you. He said in Philippians 4.19, My God will supply every need of yours according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. His words become more powerful as we see fully what He endured and walked through. Remember, He wrote those words while in prison. But had they been written while He was in Corinth saying, I I am weary and worn out, have very little, am at my last I'm at the end of myself, and yet, he would have said the same, my God will supply every need, every need according to his riches, to his economy, not mine. And it should be said, I suppose, in a place of abundance, and certainly there's a diversity even within us as a body, but in this region, abundantly rich with the resources we have, with the comforts we enjoy. Times of abundance don't always draw us closer to Jesus. In fact, times when we need very little, it may be hard to remember our desperate need of a Savior and provider. We may become numb to it or blinded to it. And so, riches and abundance are not wrong. Jesus has something to say about them, about the rich man and the heart of the rich man and how difficult it is to be able to lay down any kind of connection between our abundance or our securities. And yet they're not wrong. We can say, and rightfully so, Jesus, thank you. I praise you. I worship you, the giver, not the gifts. Help my trust not be there in those things. I do not trust them. When Jesus said to Paul, remember Paul was crying out for relief from this thorn in the flesh. That would be too much of a tangent to try to dissect that and probably different opinions of what that meant. But what's clear is he's in anguish in some way, physically, emotionally, relationally, asking God to deliver. Good prayer. What does Jesus say back to him? My grace is sufficient for you. I am enough, is what he's saying. I am enough. Trust me. That statement cannot be received by one who is not in a place of desperate need. Not the same way, I should say. Maybe receive it mentally and as much as we can spiritually, but probably not emotionally. Probably not at the deepest level when, Lord, help me to trust fully You and You alone. God's provision, however much or however little, reminds us of His faithfulness to us and our need to trust Him. It seems that poor and needy and weary go together. I don't think we could look into our culture, even into our own lives, and say that rich and affluent and weary can also go together. Right? Riches and abundance are are not the answer to our securities and ultimately to our peace. But for those of you that are in a place this morning where the opening theme song of Friends is your reality, you guys remember that, right? No one told you life was going to be this way. Your job's a joke, you're broke, your love life's DOA. It's like you're always stuck in second gear. And it hasn't been your day, your week, your month, or even your year. But God's chorus is better than the Rembrandt's chorus. Weary and warm, but not alone. Your friends 
are forever friends. That's what His Word teaches us. Hebrews 12 reminds us, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, this is coming off of Hebrews 11, the hall of faith, uh, uh, really the champions of faith, but ultimately it's the, the champion God who has worked in and through people who have responded in faith. Since you are surrounded, we are surrounded by such a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured even the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The author of Hebrews is arguing that we're surrounded by friends, by men and women who have even gone before us, whose, whose faith was, was so strong through hard times and in t- times of endurance that we could only imagine that should encourage us and motivate us that He too will be our hope as we fix our eyes on Jesus as they did. We are not alone. That's the reminder. That's the hope. But it's more than that, isn't it? If you're a follower of Jesus, you've been adopted into this massive family, those that have gone before, but those that are alive today around the world. I'm reminded of this often. I I read often through the the Moravian text. Uh, It breaks down the Scriptures into... A piece of a portion of the Old Testament, a portion of the New, and a Psalms, and it's been kind of around for a, a couple hundred years. Estimated uh, two million or so believers uh, read pretty faithfully through through the Scriptures in this way, in this format. And I'm reminded here on the on the West Coast that we're kind of on the back, the tail end of the day. That as I'm reading that text, up to two million believers around the world have been in their Scriptures Bibles open in that text. By the time I'm opening it, I'm just reminded that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. We're not alone, and though I don't see them or break bread with them, at least not this side of eternity, uh, I'm encouraged. And we can go through our life and our world and our rhythms and feel like, I don't know if I even bumped into another Christ follower today. How encouraging would it be, though, if as we live with light and live as salt, that others would know and see How encouraging it is to find that we are not alone. We are with brothers and sisters even as we go, even as we move. If God could give us that vision of those points of light, but we are some of those being sent to our workplaces, our schools, our communities. Bear that in mind, that you would be that kind of encouragement one to another. You're not alone. And if you're here this morning and you're you're feeling alone, you need not remain there. And not just in the broader, bigger sense. Be reminded of that. Be encouraged by that. But in the immediate, in the tangible, you need to be willing to take a step, even if it's as simple as lingering after this service, to let people say hi and come in and connect. And then, for, to be honest, right, some of us don't want to do that. We don't want to remain alone, and yet the, the fear of being known may be even greater. Lord, help us. In order to grow, we are called to be together. We need one another in community, beyond a a gathering, a service like this where we are worshiping Jesus and hearing the proclamation of His Word, the church truly is the church as it gathers in homes, as it gathers in various places, as it breaks bread together, as it serves and ministers one to another, being known and and knowing one another, that we might walk with, that we might bear one another's burdens. 
that we might care for and extend mercy and grace in times of need, that we might encourage all the more as we see the day approaching. Be in community. Need not be alone. And and this is a community to belong first as you are coming to believe. And maybe as behavior starts to change, not the other way around. You don't have to behave or believe before belonging. That was Jesus' economy. Come to me. Come to me all. Put your faith and hope in me and me alone. You will find rest. I think we'll end with that call as well this morning. Oh, I should say I wrote this into my notes this morning. If you're living in a remote place and happen to be listening to this, I don't know, maybe Harare or Saldana, and you're feeling fairly alone, you're not. We see you, we pray for you, we love you, we miss you, and we are with you. God's provisions and God's people, amazing reminders of his goodness and his faithfulness. And if you're up to this point and you're being encouraged and you're being reminded and yet you would honestly say, but I'm still weary, I'm ready to give up, so would Paul. Even though he wasn't alone and was seeing God work and there were incredible blessings and he was being provided for, he had enough, he was still weary. The great mighty Paul, not just weary but afraid, maybe afraid again of just the pain of suffering, another beating. Maybe his wounds hadn't even healed since Philippi and he's being threatened and reviled in the same kind of way. Another night being tortured in prison in the stocks, in chains. I don't blame him. And ready maybe just to, hey, pack up camp, zip lips, go home. We'll, we'll see if we can recoup and, and recover and do this again. That's by his own testimony, right? The words that we read. But we know this is true of Paul by these very words that the Lord Jesus speaks to him. Verse 9, in this vision at night, do not be afraid. I don't tend to believe that Jesus says that to people who aren't afraid, <laughs> but knowing his heart, do not be afraid. A very, very consistent encouragement throughout Scripture to God's people. Do not be afraid. Go on speaking. Do not be silent. I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, not in this city. And I have many in this city who are my people. And so he stayed a year and six months teaching the Word of God among them. There's the reason right there. All of that build up, right, for that. Here's why he endured. Here's why he stayed. Jesus met him. Jesus encouraged him. Jesus spoke to him. As helpful as God's people and provisions were, that's not where we put our trust. That's not where we put our hope. If you haven't figured this out by now, people will let you down, leave you, or worse. Things will not sustain you they will not save you jesus said do not store up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy where thieves break in and steal all of that's futile and it will fade and it will crumble we need something better to put our hope into jesus reminded that he was better better than any person or any earthly provision or even earthly protection paul had god's presence with him as well as his promise 
There may not be anything more important than that, His presence. I am with you. So many times throughout the Old Testament, God reminds His people, I am with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. It's where they found their hope. It's where they kept endurance. God was with them. The picture, as I talked about last week in the Old Testament, is that tabernacle picture of God dwelling with His people. Coming down from heaven ultimately to dwell in a tent just to be near. And the picture of the New Testament is Jesus, the incarnation, the one who dwells with, who tabernacles with His people. Resonate with Paul here. Paul had just been in Athens, and what had he preached? One of the most well-known sermons outside of the Gospels. And in that sermon, he said, God is near you. He is findable. He is right there. He's within grasp to every one of you. So that's what he's been preaching on the Acropolis. And here he is in Corinth, needing the very same reminder to his own soul. Even Paul, as he continued in ministry, trying to be faithful in his calling, got himself to a place where he would have said, Jesus, I don't feel you. Lord, I don't know that you're near. I, don't, I just don't see you. And we would say, Paul, but people are coming to Christ. Your, your ministry and your, your preaching is being effective. Look, you've got people near you. You've got a place to stay. You've got all of these things. It wasn't enough. And it shouldn't have been enough. Jesus alone is enough. Jesus was calling him back, was seeing him in that place. So if you are in that place of just weariness, and you look at all these things, and you're like, why? I should not be in this place. I look around me. I, I, have all, I do have everything that I need. No, life's not perfect, but it's, it's pretty good. I'm still weary. Jesus sees you in that place. And He's reminding you again where your trust and hope is found. In Him and Him alone, in His presence. He has not left you. He sees you. And He is coming still again for you to remind you His love and pursuit. Psalm 34, verse 4, I sought the Lord, and He answered me, and He delivered me from all my fears. That's the theme throughout Scripture. To those who seek, they will find. We also know the truth of, for God is seeking, that He will find. Verse 8 of Psalm 34, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. His presence is truly enough. When Jesus said, apart from Me you can do nothing, Paul knew that and said it in Philippians, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens Me. Him alone, His presence, His grace is enough. And yet God does more than promise His presence to Paul. He goes beyond that and He gives them, him this window of protection. I am with you and no one will attack you or harm you, at least not, not in this city. And that emboldened Paul, I'm sure, to stay and to continue to teach. It made me think of how Jesus was asleep on the boat in the storm. How did he do that? He too was weary and exhausted. I think there's another picture of his physical exhaustion. But the disciples thought they were going to die. And they then tried to rebuke Jesus. Jesus, help us, wake up! And we know maybe the rest of the story. Jesus rebukes them and the wind and the waves. How did he have that kind of peace? Jesus may not have known every 
detail of what was to come as he walked in his humanity, but he knew this. It wasn't ending for him on that boat. And so he could sleep in the midst of that storm. And that's the window of protection that Jesus gave to Paul. No one's going to harm you in this city. Preach. Keep going. I got it. I got your back. And so he stays for 18 months proclaiming. It doesn't mean there wasn't opposition. He didn't say the storm was going away. He said, no one's going to harm you. The story's not ending here. Continue in faithfulness. Ironically, at the end of the chapter, someone else is taken out and beaten. And it's not Paul for once. God is faithful to his word. And it encouraged him. But I think the second promise may have encouraged him even more. I have many in this city who are my people. That actually wasn't a statement on Hey, there's many who you haven't met yet who are already Christians. It was, I've already appointed many who will respond to the message of the gospel and come to know me. Be faithful. It's like going on that fishing trip knowing you're going to fill up your limit. And so Paul remains faithful. Just as Luke had said in Acts 13, verse 48, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. This is God's sovereignty. God sees and knows beyond any, of our, beyond any stretch of our understanding as He pursues all men and women and desires all to be saved. He also, in some way, predestines elects. Paul would write to Roman, the Roman church, Romans 8.29, For those He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Isn't it amazing without this, that's a whole sermon or series on in and of itself. God's sovereignty, man's responsibility. But isn't it amazing we have Paul who proclaims and teaches as clear as anyone God's sovereignty, election, and predestination. And in his life and his model proclaims that man's responsibility and burden of evangelism. If we don't go and we don't preach, how will they ever come? He held that in somehow in perfect tension. And we can too. God's sovereignty and our responsibility to be faithful to his call and commission. I think it must have been encouraging and motivating for Paul to know that in Corinth many would come to find new life as he continued to preach. And I'm sure at any moment when he said, okay, maybe that's it, more kept coming and the church was built and began to grow. How amazing that the harvest here in a place that was even darker that by, by our perspective would be even further away from God, more perverse, more evil, more rampant sin. And this is where the church grows, where the light shines most brightly in the darkness. Whereas amongst the intellectuals and the Stoics of Athens, there's very little harvest to the very same word of hope. Amazingly, all of the promises the Lord Jesus gave to Paul are ours today. They're for us. Because we see them throughout the Scriptures. God's presence. He promises to be with us and never leave us and never forsake us. Jesus said in John 14, I will ask the Father 
and He will give to you another helper, another of the same kind, to be with you forever. He's the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him, but you will know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. There's maybe no clearer promise of God's presence with His people than that one right there from Jesus. He promises to be with us. If you feel alone, if you feel that God is far and not near, remember the promise that Jesus spoke. He is with you and He is in you. Claim that promise. Even as we were praying this morning, we're praying always for God to make Himself known. Lord, in manifest ways that we would see You and know You, see Your work and proclaim You. But if You choose not to manifest Yourself, we claim Your promises. We know they are true. Forgive us in our forgetfulness. Remind us again, Lord, of Your presence with us. As we come to the table again this morning, we are reminded of His presence with us in a tangible way. I'm so thankful for that tangible institution, that ordinance that Jesus left for us. Do this in remembrance, as if He knew that we were prone to forget that He is with us and in us through what He has done and through giving the Holy Spirit. God's protection is for us. Now, we may not have a specific word from the Lord for protection in a season or for health in a season, but what Jesus reminded us in Matthew 10, verse 28, was that Do not fear those that can reach the body and kill the body or harm the body. Do not fear what can happen to this body because that's not your life. That's not who you are. Fear the one who has authority over the soul. Your soul is eternal. No man can reach that. No man can touch that. And then he reminds them, apart from the Father, not even one sparrow falls to the ground. And you are so much more valuable than they. God is sovereign and He sees you. He is sustaining you. He is with you. And even if the worst that could happen on this earth does come to you, Jesus is there. He is already there with you. He's already walked that path ahead of you. All that would do would make you closer to Him. Do not fear what man can do. Your hope and your life and your soul is secure. God's provision is His promise, just as it was to be encouragement for Paul. Not only is God in control, God cares more than you do. God cares more about your life than He cares more about those around you than you ever will. Be reminded of that. As we might look into our life and say, Lord, where are you? I need you. I've got needs. I need your provision. Remember that He cares more. Look at the lilies of the field. They do not labor or spin. And yet He adorns them. You are much more valuable than they. And remember that if God has called us, He will finish His work. The work that He began, Philippians 1, He will carry on to completion. God is faithful if He has called. It seems that Paul needed to be reminded of his call, even in that place in Corinth. That He had been called to the Gentiles. That He had been called to be a light to them. That he was being promised to be a, that God was going to be effective in his ministry and that he would suffer. Acts 9. God needed that reminder. Paul needed that reminder from the Lord, and Jesus gave it. And we all share the same call generally. We're under the same call. Matthew 28 19. 
Go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything. And what's that last piece? Hopefully we don't leave that off. For I am with you to the end of the age. Paul's ministry in Corinth so exemplified, didn't that? He had gone, he went, he went to Corinth. He's proclaiming the gospel. He's teaching them faithfully. Those that are saved are being baptized. And Jesus reminds him, I am with you. If God has called you, he will fulfill his word and his work. And for those of you that have been called to something specific, like Paul was, because generally we are called to be sent ones, to be like him and like Paul in, in our apostleship, but we may be sent here to this region, to this place, to this school, to this workplace, to these neighborhoods. We can have just as much sentness as Paul did to the ends of the earth. But if God has called you to something specific, a specific locale, and it's a mission field that you know He will be faithful to fulfill it. We don't determine the harvest, right? The Lord is the Lord of the harvest and the one who multiplies 30, 60, or 100 fold. The harvest may be little like it was in Athens or it may be much like it was in Corinth. But God sees our faithfulness and our commitment and that's what makes us ultimately effective missionaries, effective evangelists as we continue to proclaim who Jesus is. By the way, if as we are preaching, I was reminded of this this week by a friend, if what we're saying doesn't sound like good news, we probably need to think of it in a different way. The gospel is good news. If we hesitate to preach the gospel because we're, we're, we assume that it's not going to be received because it's not going to be heard as good, I don't even know if I want to hear that. That's not the gospel. That's probably religion or legalism, behaviorism. The gospel sounds good. Jesus is all in all. Jesus is righteous, ruler, savior, king. He is the friend that will never leave you. He is the, the bread of life that will never leave you empty. He is the righteous warrior king whom none can contend. We need to be reminded maybe again that Jesus is better, that he is the greater one, that he has come and is with us, and that he is working for us. I said we'd end here. His call to those who are weary, and we sang it a little bit earlier. Matthew eleven twenty eight. This is our one call this morning to draw near. Come to me, he said, all who are weary and heavy laden. Feel a weight upon you or a pressure or a burden from any of those any of those things that we were talking about. Take my yoke upon you. Exchange this is the, an exchange of that weight of burden, that anxiety producing fear. It's exchanging that yoke and taking his yoke upon you. For my yoke is light and my I am gentle and lowly, and you will find rest for your souls. That's his promise. As we draw near to him, as we fix our eyes upon him, we come to the table in remembrance and in thanksgiving. And I encourage you to make him your all in all. For those that come in seasons of 
abundance with that thanksgiving, not trusting the gifts, but the giver. And for those who are coming in seasons of want, be reminded that He is enough. His body and His blood shed for you is enough. And to even rejoice in this season because it's making you long for Him all the more. I'll invite the team to come. I'll read Psalm 56, a couple verses 3 and 4, and then 10 and 11, and then I'll pray for us. When I am afraid, I put my trust in You. In God, whose Word I praise. In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. This I know, that God is for me. In God, whose Word I praise. In the Lord, whose Word I praise. In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. Oh Lord, thank You for the reminder of Your presence. Thank You that even Paul shows his weariness and weakness and yet is met by You, ministered to, encouraged, and can walk with endurance to fulfill what You had called him to. Lord, I pray that this moment, these moments, have already been and will be now as we respond the very same reminder that Paul received, that You, Jesus, through the Spirit, would meet with us, would speak directly to each one exactly what we need to hear. You see us. You know us. You even reach out and help us to lift off that yoke, to lift off that burden, that weariness, that anxiety, and to put You on. Your promises. Your provisions. Your grace. Your mercy. Help us, Lord. You've called us to something so important. For some, You've clarified that call very specifically. We cannot do it without You. We need You, Lord, deeply. And I pray that our worship this morning is in response to that need and that You would give us, through the Spirit, hope, joy, faithfulness. For You are worthy, Lord. And we love You deeply. Help us to love You more and more. In Your name, Jesus. Amen.